Forgiveness from the sermon series, Community, spoken by Pastor Clayton Chan. Happy Mother's Day to all of you, uh, to all the mothers, including spiritual mothers. I just want to say thank you for everything that you do. And I say this from a personal level because I know personally for myself, I wouldn't be who I am or where I am except for, the mo- except for the women in my lives who have really invested and cared for me. And that includes my mom, my grandmother, but also the spiritual woman who have really helped mentor me and brought me to this place. Um, I think there is something special about a mother's love. And I'm not saying that as men or as fathers, we fail to love our children, but I think there is something special about how a mother loves and cares and protects their child. And I get to see that every single day with my wife, Esther. Right, Esther, one of the things I love about her is her passion. Right, she is passionate. And when it comes to injustice, she may seem like this common reserved person, but when it comes to injustice, she becomes this fiery and passionate and zealous person, especially when, it, when it's about our children. For example, recently my son Weston, he came back home from daycare one day, and oftentimes when he comes home, we'll ask him, how was your day? What did you do? And so he mentioned that there was someone in his class who was being mean to him. And let's just call this kid David, right? So as we investigated and probed and started to figure out what happened, he told us that this David pushed him. And so before I could respond or answer, my wife says, next time he pushes you, push him harder. (laughs) And so it was one of those moments where my wife and I weren't on the same page. We sort of looked at, I, I looked at her. Right? And I was just thinking, like, uh, I don't know if I agree with that. But thankfully, thankfully, my son responded, uh, maybe next time. Right? And what he really meant was, I, I hear you, but I'm not going to do that. Right? What you need to understand about my son is that he is not a fighter. He was born a lover. Right? And some of you guys know that because you've seen this kid, this three-year-old, run around church hugging strangers, or maybe you were that one stranger where he said, pick me up, or hugging you. Right? That's my son. Right? There's a good chance if a three-year-old comes to you, that's, me, that's my son, Weston. <laughs> In the end, my wife and I did get on the same page, and we talked about how we wanted to respond. And so we sat Weston down, and we told him, yes, it's really important that you stand up for yourself but maybe you should use your words first before you start getting into a shoving match. But the point is this. In the Chan household, you do not mess with my wife. You do not mess with her. And I'm not saying that her love for our children is greater than mine, no. I just think it's a lot more passionate, it's a lot more fiery, and when her children are hurt, she becomes this mama bear, and her instincts come out to want to protect them. And I don't think this is a unique response only to mothers or to my wife. I think for all of us, we would react in a similar way. If somebody who we love is being hurt, we want, them, we want to protect them. And we want the person who's hurting them to get repaid or to find justice because of how they are hurting them. It's easier for us to give in to our instincts to repay and to retali- retaliate than it is to do what God calls us to do, which is to forgive. For the last few weeks, we've been talking about community and we've been addressing different uh, aspects or maybe key ingredients on how to build community. But today, 
we're going to talk about forgiveness. And I think this is the most important aspect uh, as we talk about community because all the other things that we've talked about, all the other things that we've addressed aid in building community, but it's forgiveness that allows us to maintain and sustain community. It's forgiveness that is key to us holding on to community. And since we were talking about community in regards to the church, I think that's super relevant today. I think it's really relevant that we talk about community and the church and forgiveness because at one point in time, I know for all of us, we've been hurt by the church. For all of us, we have been hurt by people who call themselves Christians. And I think because of those church wounds, that has left people either leaving the church outright or it's had people leave their previous church in search of a new community. My assumption is that there are a good number of you here today because you were wounded by your previous church. And it was easier to distance yourself from those who have hurt you than to mend broken relationships. And now, like on one hand, I'm happy about that. I'm happy that you continue to seek community. But on the other hand, I'm broke. My heart is broken for you. My heart is broken that you would distance yourself from others, from those who have hurt you, that you've left the community that you love because of how wounded you are. And my hope today is that we would break that pattern, that even if the person to your left or to your right hurt you, that you would do the hard work, the hard work of actually forgiving them so that you can stay in this community. Right? This is why I say forgiveness is so important, maybe the most important aspect of community because it's what allows us to stay a community. And so today we're going to talk and unpack what forgiveness is and why we should choose to forgive others. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to re- we are going to read Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. starting with verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. 
Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should be paid back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Jesus has been teaching his disciples about the kind of community life that should characterize his kingdom and his people. That's when Peter poses this question. And from this question, what we see about Peter is that he's very practical. Right? He's not an idealist. He's not this daydreamer. But he has a full grasp of reality. He knows that even though we are called to love each other as God's people, that being in community isn't easy. He knows that there will be times, even as God's people, that we're going to sin, hurt each other, and wound each other, whether intentional or not. And oftentimes when Peter speaks, we know he's, that, he's like that student who's trying to impress the teacher. And so as he's talking to Jesus, as he's posing this question to him, to Jesus, he has a number in mind. He has a number in mind hoping that it would impress Jesus. But what he doesn't know is that God's standards, Jesus' standards, is far greater than the world's. Peter thought he was acing the test when he says up to seven times, right? In Jewish tradition, it was taught that you were to forgive others up to three times. After that third time, the fourth time, you had no obligation to because the thought was that if somebody keeps hurting you, if someone keeps uh, wounding you, then they probably don't really mean their repentance. They probably aren't sincere. They're probably just putting on a show to be forgiven. And so Peter, knowing this, he throws out this number seven to Jesus. Peter is taking forgiveness to a whole nother level. He is, his standard for forgiveness is far greater than the Jewish tradition, even doubling it. But instead of getting a well done or a pat on the back, what does Jesus respond? He says, not seven, but 77 times. The number here that Jesus throws out isn't important. Jesus isn't saying that there is a limit to forgiveness. There is no requirement to forgiveness. But by his response, he is saying that you are to forgive without keeping count. Forgiveness doesn't come with conditions. There is no limit to the number of times we are to forgive each other. There is no requirement of apology. There is no restitution that needs to be made. Because forgiveness is a choice that one makes as one who has been hurt. Reconciliation, restoration, these things have conditions. In order for a relationship to be restored, things have to happen. There needs to be apology, there needs to be remorse, there needs to be restitution, there needs to be trust that's reestablished. But none of those things are needed with forgiveness because forgiveness is ultimately about you. It's about your relationship with God. It's about your healing through God and the freedom that he wants to give to you. This is why for so many of us, forgiveness is so difficult. In our notion of justice, we believe that those who hurt others need to account for their wrongdoing. It doesn't sit right with us that someone would hurt another person and then go scot-free. But forgiveness is not letting the offender off the hook. It is not to sweep the wrongdoing under the rug as if it never happened. To forgive is to call out the wrong, to acknowledge what happened 
but not be overcome by it. When we forgive, it's a process and a choice, and that choice that we are making is to release the offender from the offense. It is the uncoupling of what the person did from who he is or who she is. We are able to separate the person from the offense, and doing so leads to freedom. When we forgive, we are releasing ourselves from the burden of getting revenge and doling out justice the way we see fit. And instead, we are allowing the God of justice to discipline and to enact justice as he sees fit. Right? The Greek word for forgiveness is ephiemi, and it means letting go. Forgiveness is letting go. In forgiveness, you are letting go of the debt that is owed to you and allowing God to be in control. It's only when we allow God to be the judge who will right every wrong that we can enter into relationship and community again. By letting go of the debt owed and allowing God to be the judge, we begin to see that we are no different than the person who has hurt us. At one point in time, we also have been the offender and hurt others. In letting go, we are untethered by the power of that offense. So why should you and I choose to forgive? Right? If forgiveness is about letting go, why should you and I choose to forgive? The first reason is because forgiveness leads to freedom. Forgiveness leads to freedom. <clears throat> Notice in this parable about forgiveness, there is this theme of imprisonment and slavery. The consequence of unforgiveness is to be in bondage and imprisoned. Right? Oftentimes when we are hurt, it feels like we are being imprisoned by our emotions. Ultimately, after we've processed what's happened to us or the wrong done to us, what usually follows is anger and bitterness. And this is what I see as the power of the offense. It's not that you were just hurt by that one thing that was done to you, but there's a residual effect of the offense. And in this case, the only person who's hurting is the one who has been offended. Right, the person who did the offense, the person who committed the wrong, they're not the ones thinking about what, how you're affected by it. They're not thinking about what they've done to you. It's the one who has been hurt that continues to dwell upon what's happened, lamenting and grieving how they were wronged. Even allowing their anger to fester to a point where they become bitter and resentful towards that other person. And we see this in the parable today. It is the king who searches for and finds the servant who owes him a debt. We're not told how this person came into this debt, but what we do know is that this servant is a official who's under the king, who's been given resources by the king to use or to gain or to collect. But in some way he's failed and he's lost it. It is the king who is impacted by the debt, not the servant. The servant was probably going on with his day as normal without a worry in his mind, not until he was brought in to take an account for his actions. And what did he owe? We're told that the, the man, the servant, owed the king 10,000 bags of gold. In other translations, they use the word talent instead of gold. So it's really hard to really come up with a definitive number or exact amount of what this 10,000 bags of gold represented, especially in current times. But what scholars will say is that it equates to maybe somewhere in the billions of dollars in today's currency. 
This servant owed a lot of money, more money than he could ever pay in his lifetime. And when the king calls him in, there's no apology. There's not even an explanation of what happened. There's no sense of remorse or repentance. Not until the king orders that he and his wife, his children, and all that they had be sold to repay the debt. It's only after the servant realizes how dire his situation is that he responds in the way that he does in verse 26. He responds, at this servant, at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. It's almost as if the reason for his plea isn't because he failed or wronged the king, but because he was caught. It's like a child who acts dumb until he's caught red-handed. Can we really say that his plea or his response is sincere if the only reason he's doing it is because he's been caught? What the man offers is not an apology, but he begs for mercy because he knows that no matter how much time he's given, he will never be able to repay what he owed to the king. The only real victim in all of this is a king who's been robbed in a sense of his 10,000 bags of gold. But the offense doesn't just end there. We see that his mercy was taken for granted and he's made to look like a fool. What starts off as a one-time offense has a way of snowballing into many offenses. Instead of seeing the offense as this one-time event, we begin to look and think about all the ways that that person has hurt us in the past. And I'm guilty of this also. I've been in arguments with my wife Esther where we were arguing about one thing and then it just starts spiraling all into other things. Right? We start to remember all of our past offenses towards each other. Even though we have a rule of never bringing up the past, when you're angry, when you're bitter, when you're resentful, when you're just mad, you naturally go and think about all the things that they've done to you in the past. That's what happens when we allow our resentment and anger to grow. In the end, you're just in a worse place. What started off as arguing about one thing has made you even more mad because you think about all the things. Instead of separating what the person did from who they are, you start to characterize that person by what they did. You start to vilify them. They start to look like a monster in your eyes. You start to attack their integrity and their character because it's hard for you to separate what they did from who they are. When I was a freshman in high school, I had my first explicit racist experience. Uh, I, was re I was weighing in for a wrestling match, and after I weighed in, this upperclassman comes to me, and he says, ching chong chong. Right? And, and I, I was shocked. I was shocked because I was like, I don't understand. You're a teammate of mine. Why would you say that to me? Right? But a part of me also, I just felt ashamed because I didn't know how to respond to him. I didn't have the self-awareness or the self-esteem to stand up for myself. But thankfully, I had a friend uh, who actually stood up for me. And so he called this person out for his racist behavior, and he put him in his place. But after that day, I started to look at this upperclassman in a different light. Right? Justice was served. My friend called him out, put him in his place. He looked like a fool for what he did. But that wasn't enough for me. I wanted him to suffer the same way I suffered. And so secretly, deep down inside, I would love it when he lost his wrestling matches. 
Right? I loved seeing him being pummeled by the other opponents. And think about how twisted this is, because on one hand, I'm happy to see him lose and lose badly. But on the other hand, him losing actually affects me and harms me because there's times where we'll lose the match or we'll lose the competition because of his results. Right? That's how twisted anger and bitterness may, uh, that's how twisted we become when we're angry and bitter. We rather see bad things happen to other people, even if it harms us also. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been happy to see bad things happen to those who have hurt you? You might even have people in this church where you've thought about in that way. There could be someone in this room right now who has lied to you or said something hurtful to you. Or maybe it wasn't so direct. Maybe they gossiped behind your back. Or maybe they shared something personal and private that you've shared with them. Maybe it isn't even that. Maybe it's just that you feel like people or a group of people are excluding you or singling you out. These are just some of the ways that people in the church might have hurt you. And I'm sorry that you've had to experience that. But what it means, but this is part of what it means to be a community. I think to some degree, we just have to be okay with the possibility of getting hurt if we're really gonna invest and be intentional about relationships. That's the cost of being in relationship. To open yourself up and to be in relationship with others is risky, but the alternative is far worse. Because if you're only worried about getting hurt, if you're only trying to protect yourself and you close yourself off, then the result is that you have no real shot at a real relationship. And this is why forgiveness is so important in the church. In forgiving, you no longer have to be bound by the anger and bitterness that you feel, hoping the worst for people, or even distancing yourself from others. Right? Some, of you, some of you may not be in that place where you're actually hoping the worst for others, but maybe you're starting to create certain boundaries within the church, right? certain places that you can go to avoid the person who's hurt you or the, to avoid the person that you want to, to not see. But by doing so, you're actually causing cracks and killing community in this church. Forgiving others is about letting go a part of the, 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 forgiving others is about letting go of that part in us that wants to destroy community, like our anger, bitterness, and delight in seeing other people's pain. And instead, we are free to be people who want the best for each other, even those who we call enemies, or even those who have hurt us. If you've been hurt by your previous church, my hope is that you would actually deal with that pain today, even as you are part of this church. Just because you no longer go to that church doesn't mean that you, carry, you don't carry those pains with you. Maybe the first step towards forgiveness for you is to pray a blessing over those who have hurt you. Or maybe it's to confront the person and to talk about what happened, not in a condemning way where you say, hey, you need to apologize for what you've done, but maybe it's confronting them in love so that they know what they've done and how much pain it caused so that they don't do it again. Living in resentment and anger will only destroy your soul. It will take you away from being the person that God desires for you to be. 
In Ephesians 4, 26, 27, verses 26 and 27, Paul speaks of the dangers of allowing our anger to take hold of us. He says in verse 26, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Do not, let, do not give the devil a foothold. Being angry is okay. Angry is a natural emotion that we feel when someone hurts us. And you are allowed to go to God with that pain. He even wants you to go to him with that pain. But that doesn't excuse us from forgiving others. It is possible to forgive others even while you're still angry. But if you don't, you're allowing yourself to be enslaved by your emotions. And God doesn't want that for you. Holding on to bitterness and anger will wreck your soul. Allowing anger to fester and grow will give the devil a foothold, and he will take that opportunity to bring you down. Don't give the devil a foothold in your life. What has been done to you cannot be undone, but we no longer have to be burdened by the power of that offense. When we respond by forgiving others, we can move forward in living in freedom. And that's what God wants for you, to live in freedom. The second reason why you and I should choose to forgive is because forgiveness leads to healing. Forgiveness leads to healing. What will keep you and I from being healed from our wounds is to hold on to those wounds. It's not like we want to hold on to them, but it's so hard sometimes to simply let go. Forgiveness sometimes is not just this one-time event, but it's a process, and part of that process may mean that you have to forgive that person over and over again. Each day, you might have to forgive that person because you find yourself living through that pain and dwelling upon that pain over and over again. But with each act of forgiveness, you move from being a victim to being a vessel of grace. And this is what, we, what the king demonstrates in the parable. There was no path forward for the king to recoup what was lost. The servant would never have been able to pay back what he owed. But by forgiving the servant, the king, by forgiving the servant and wiping away the debt, what the king demonstrates is mercy. He demonstrates mercy. The king has gone from one being wrong to being the one who allows grace to prevail in this difficult situation. Grace should be what defines who we are, especially as we live in community with people who hurt us. After being shown mercy, the servant is given the same opportunity to be a vessel of grace. But what happens? He does not follow the lead of the king. He does not do what the king has demonstrated. Instead, he chose to continue to see himself as the victim. And he insisted that his fellow servant pay him back, throwing him into jail. But the reality is, if he's in jail, he will never be able to pay him back. And he will always and continue to be a victim. The trouble with seeing yourself only as a victim is that when it becomes your identity, you will continue to allow that wrongdoing to hurt you over and over again. And the more that you dwell on your pain without being healed, the easier it becomes to have this victim's mentality. 
Right? When you continue to see yourself as the victim over and over again, you lose empathy for others. Right? Whatever conflict that you get into, you see the other person as the person who's out to get you or the person who's at fault. Oftentimes when we're in conflict with other people and we have this mentality, right, it's, it's all about what they've done to us. It's never about our part in the conflict because we can't take ownership of our part because we don't see ourselves as doing anything wrong. We're the victim. But here's God's truth for you today. You are not a victim. You are not a victim. Yes, you have been victimized, but you are not a victim. If you are a Christ follower, you are a child of God. Amen. That is your identity. You are a child of God. Amen. What happened to you, the pain and the hurt that you feel is real. And I don't want to minimize it because I think and I know that a lot of you guys have been through such difficult things. So difficult that it might be so hard for you to forgive. But if you don't choose to forgive, you will never be healed from that pain. You will continue to identify yourself as the victim. You, you choose to identify you as what's happened to you rather than who God is in your life and how God wants you to live into being that child of God that he's made you. You can either continue to see yourself as a victim, holding on to that pain, or you can move forward in being healed by God and letting go and forgiving others. Forgiveness leads to healing. We should forgive because yes, it, gives us, it leads us to freedom, but it also heals us. And the final reason why we should choose, you and I should choose to forgive, is because forgiveness leads to God's forgiveness. Forgiveness leads to God's forgiveness. Forgiving others is to remember that we first have been forgiven. In the passage, we find that the servant who has been forgiven by the king comes across his fellow servant who owes him money. He chokes that fellow servant, demands that he be paid back. And when he cannot, when that servant cannot pay his fellow servant back, even though he asked for the exact same request that he had from the king, he is thrown into jail. He's denied that request. There is no mercy, there is no forgiveness. And after hearing about what happened from his other servants, what does the king do in response? In verse 32, he responds, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This serves as a warning to all of us who have received God's grace and mercy in our lives. Jesus has paid the price of our sins on the cross. Our forgiveness is found in Jesus' death on the cross. But the truth is that we may not be living into that reality completely we may not be living into the reality of God's grace if we don't forgive others. Right. To not forgive is to hold yourself hostage from the reality of what Christ has done for you. The king's mercy and grace had no impact on the servant's life, and we know that because he did not show mercy when he had the opportunity to do so. 
Although he was forgiven, the power of forgiveness hadn't taken root in his life. He accepted the personal benefit without, without allowing it to convict his heart and to transform him. In the end, Jesus says that to the degree that we forgive others is the degree that God will forgive us. To the degree that we forgive others is the same degree that God will forgive us. There is, no, there is a condition to our forgiveness. If we withhold forgiveness from others, we are withholding it from ourselves. If we truly understood the debt that Jesus paid for us, then we would see that no one is too far gone, no one is too corrupt, no one is too evil not to be forgiven. The debt that Jesus paid for us is far greater than any debt that could be owed to us. And how do I know this? How do I know this? It cost Jesus his life. How many of us can say that the offense that was done to us should cost that person's life? We can forgive because we have been forgiven of much. Forgiveness is not easy. It may take you some time to get to that place of being ready to forgive, but it's not an option. It is a command by God. And we know that it's good news because we know that what God desires from us, even if it's difficult, is always for our good. Forgiveness is for our good. This is why forgiveness is not about the offender. It's about the one who's been offended. I was reminded about this about a year ago. Uh, at the time, I found myself in this uh, really bad season of my life when it came to my mother-in-law. So about a year ago, uh, when my second son, Wyatt, was born, out of the kindness of her heart, my mother-in-law decided that she would come over and help us with the kids. Uh, but one of those days where she came over, my wife and I, we got into this argument, and then we started stonewalling each other. And so instead of working it out, reconciling, we started just to separate from each other. We didn't want to talk, to talk to each other. We didn't want to be near each other. I was up on the third floor. My wife was on the second floor. My mother-in-law was on the first floor, right? Nobody was talking to each other, right? And this made my mother-in-law really angry. She got really angry at us because of the way that we were acting in front of her. And so I'm just sitting there, and all of a sudden, I hear my mother-in-law start yelling at Esther. And I'm thinking, why is she yelling at Esther? What did Esther do? And so I'm getting mad because it didn't sit right with me. I was like, no matter how angry I am at Esther, I will never let anyone hurt or yell at her, especially for no reason. And so I march downstairs. I go to my mother-in-law, and I confront her. And I say, you have no reason to yell at Esther. This is just between me and her. And then the conversation became an argument. And within that argument, uh, my, my mother-in-law says, if you're going to act like this, then don't ever ask me to watch your kids again. And I was pissed at this, at this time. I was like livid. Like I wanted to scream from the top of my lungs because how dare she bring my kids into this argument? Right? How dare she use my kids to threaten us? Really, it truly was an act of grace, right? Because only by God's power was I able to just calm down enough to be able to speak with her. And I told her, look, if you don't want to see your grandkids anymore, that's on you. But don't ever use them to threaten us and to hurt us. The conversation ended. And when I was, bringing her home back, when I was driving her back home, it was the most awkward car ride ever. <laughs> Not a word was spoken. It was dead silence. There was no goodbye when she was leaving the car. It was just silence. 
And it would be a couple of months until I actually spoke to her again. And the reason was because deep down inside, I was hurt. I felt betrayed. At issue was her not wanting us to fight in front of her. But for me, I felt like she wasn't being considerate about my culture and how I was raised. Right? For her, she said that we shouldn't fight in front of her because she's an elder. She has this very traditional Korean uh, culture. But for me, like, I grew up, my mom's Korean, but we had a different culture. We had a di- I had a different upbringing. It was okay for us to speak and to talk and to discuss and argue and fight openly to each other. Right? We, in our minds, we thought it was better that we not fake it and deal with the issues openly. And so this one issue became many issues because as I thought about it more and more, as I dwelled upon it, I became more angry. It wasn't just that I shouldn't fight in front of my mother-in-law. I started to think about all the ways where I felt like she didn't accept me or that she didn't treat me well. And I just became more angry and more bitter. It got to the point where I was just ready to cut her off. I was done with her. I didn't want to see her. I didn't want to speak with her. And I, I went to Esther, my wife, and I was like, "Hun, I love you, but I can't be around your family anymore. Like, if they can't accept me for who I am and my culture, then why would I want to be around them? And so I told her, you don't need to choose. I'm not asking you to choose between me and your family. I want you to go see your family. I want you to take the kids to your family, but I just can't be there. And so for a while, I just didn't go to any of the family gatherings. I didn't speak to them. I didn't talk to them. I wasn't around. But sooner or later, I just knew deep down inside, this is not what God wanted for me. I knew that God didn't want me to have a strange relationship with my mother-in-law. And so after processing what happened, after processing and thinking and just being in my feelings for a while, like God was prompting me to start this journey of forgiveness with her. And so I picked up the phone and I called her and I wish I could tell you that it was the most beautiful, easiest conversation ever, but it was not. It was not smooth, it was not easy, and I confronted her with what she did to me and all the things where I felt like she had slighted me, where she had mistreated me. And of course, she didn't receive that well. She just felt like I was just blaming her and just piling on top of things. But I told her, like, I'm telling you this not because I need an apology. I don't want your apology. I don't need an apology. I need you to know how I feel and why I feel this way. I just need you to understand that I've been hurt. And that was the beginning of reconciliation for us. I can happily say that we have a restored relationship. We celebrated Mother's Day yesterday. And I can honestly say that our relationship is in a better place because we have a better understanding of each other. We have a better understanding, I have a better understanding of her culture, she has a better understanding of my culture. But it began with that first step of forgiveness. Without forgiveness, there is no restoration, there is no reconciliation. Forgiveness is not easy, but the alternative is to be a prisoner to the wounds and pains that we've experienced. God desires a life of freedom for you. He wants you to be free from your bitterness, anger, your need for justice, and he wants you to move forward in healing. Amen. 
That's the only way that we can enter into relationships and community again. There will always be people who hurt us. And the reality is because we're all broken and sinful. But God has given us a way forward to right the wrongs and to reconcile. And that's through forgiveness. Will you forgive those who have hurt you today? Will you take that first step in the journey of forgiveness by acknowledging the hurt that you've experienced and move forward, letting go of your need for justice and allowing God to heal you? You are no longer a victim. You are a child of God. Live into that identity. Remember, we were first forgiven. And because of that, we can forgive others. Will you bow with me? I just feel, I, have, I just feel like um, there's people here who have some deep wounds. And it being Mother's Day, I feel like those possible wounds may come from a mother or mother-in-law. And so if that's you, if you have a rocky relationship with your mother, or even if you have bitterness or anger towards your mother, where it's really hard for you to celebrate today, I just ask that you raise your hand, because I just want to pray a prayer of healing over you. Nobody's looking, everyone's eyes are down. Thank you. God, I think it's so difficult when the people that we trust to love us and protect us are the ones who hurt us. And I pray, Father, for the people who have raised their hands right now, for those who today is a difficult day. They want to celebrate. They want to honor their their mother. But it's so hard because of the pain and the trauma that their mothers have caused. And so I just pray for healing in their lives. I pray, Father, that you would soften their hearts, that you would bring them to a place of just taking that first step of forgiveness, understanding that they no longer have to be imprisoned by their emotions or how they feel or the hurt or the pain. I pray that you would give them the eyes to see their moms in the same way that you see them, broken, but yet beautiful. And so, God, I pray that today might be the first day in the journey of forgiveness for them. I pray that you would give them the courage and the strength to do what our emotions tell us not to do. That you would give them the strength and the courage to do what is so difficult, to surrender our wills, our desires, our instincts, and to do what you command, which is to forgive and to forgive generously. And so I pray, God, for a restored relationship for these people who have raised their hands, who desire a good and healthy relationship with their mothers again. And I pray, Father, that as you begin and start them on this journey, they will be reciprocated also. Right? Forgiveness is one-sided, but reconciliation demands and needs two people, God. And so I just pray that you would restore these relationships.
So I pray that you would bless these people, God, who have courageously raised their hands. And that even in this moment, Father, that they would cling to you, that they would know you, and they would know, Father, that even in their brokenness, even in their pain, that there is no better place to, to be than in your arms. To cover them, Father, with your love. God, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. There is no one like you. There has never been anyone like you. We know, Father, that you love us because of the price that you paid to forgive us. And so I also believe, Father, that there are people here in this church who have been hurt by someone else in this church. And as we're talking about community, I just pray, Father, that they would let go of the pain, that they would let go of just the anger and the bitterness that they may feel right now, and that they would seek to restore relationship with the people, with the brothers and sisters of this church and this community. I pray, Father, that we would not look to be community killers, but that we would surrender in faith to you so that we can rebuild your community here at Metro. So Father, if any of us are struggling with that, I pray that you would just soften our hearts, that you would soften our hearts, that you would bring us to a place of not wanting bad things to happen to those who hurt us, but that we would have your hearts, that we would have your spirit, and that we would only want good things, blessings over those who may even be an enemy in this moment in our lives. So thank you, God, for the work that you're doing in our lives. Thank you, Father, for the ways that you are transforming us to be more and more like your son. I pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.